0: Hello, everyone out there in radio land or streaming land. My name is Harry Kaysen, and this half-hour program is a review of recently released movies. It's called Movie Night. That's K-N-I-G-H-T, as in a defender of the realm. I'm someone who appreciates and occasionally even defends the art of cinema. As a reviewer, perhaps I might guide you, dear listener, to what you may or may not want to spend your time on. If that sounds interesting to you, this review show might be your cup of popcorn. I was fortunate enough to have worked in Hollywood for many years as what they call a creative, though now I'm even more fortunate to reside here in lovely Cape Cod. Also, I'm not here to criticize other films or filmmakers, knowing firsthand what a maddening, unpredictable, and only occasionally rewarding world that can be. In short, I'm here to recommend current movies I admire. Over the next 30 minutes, I'll be reviewing four feature films. Tetris, Persuasion, Bono and the Edge, A Kind of Homecoming with David Letterman, and the one film that is my current favorite for this episode. I'm keeping it a secret to hope the suspense will keep you tuned in. Perhaps you've seen these movies, perhaps not. Perhaps you've been hesitant to subject yourself to someone else's dream. Allow me to suggest otherwise as your movie night. During my many years in Southern California, I was privileged to make a few friends in the show business and I'll be interviewing one of these lovely people each episode. My guest today is a true mover and shaker in the world of entertainment. Unlike my previous guests, he mostly made his mark in television. And what a mark. He is Kerry McCluggage, the former president of Universal Television for Universal Studios. Then he became chairman of Paramount Television Group for Paramount Studios. He is truly the creative mind behind the creative minds. He, he is personally responsible for some of the finest programming to come from American TV. Here's a short list of the shows he developed. The A-Team, Law and Order, Murder, She Wrote, The Equalizer, Star Trek Voyager, and a little show called Frasier, and many more. Like I said, what a mark. He and I have been friends for years, and I'll be talking with him in just a few moments. You won't want to miss it. Okay, our first film. It's called Tetris. It was written by Noah Pink and was directed by John S. Baird. It stars Terran Edgerton, Toby James, Ayana Nagabuchi, and Nikita Efremov. Now, a little backstory. Tetris, for those of you who've been under a rock for 30 years, is a video game one of the very first where you line up falling blocks to score points. But this is not really a movie about a video game. This is a true story of a video game as an intellectual property, rather offhandedly invented in the former Soviet Union and greatly desired by the capitalist West. Taron Edgerton plays Hank Rogers, an American entrepreneur who goes to greater and greater lengths to try and secure international rights, From a people in a country where international rights are barely a concept, let alone profit or marketing, or pretty much anything we're used to here in the West. This all takes place in 1989 when the Soviet Union is in its death throes, spiraling into an absolute morass of deceit and kleptocracy, which is a society based on stealing. Amidst this whirlwind of spying and lying, Hank Rogers has to somehow gain the rights to a silly little game— because it has the potential to be worth tens of millions of dollars. On a personal note, years ago, I worked on a TV show as a researcher, before the Internet, and I took great care to assemble a beautiful library of research materials, rare books and documents that had countless references to stories and movies and novels, fairly priceless, irreplaceable stuff. As it happens in TV, we eventually got canceled, and I went in for my final workday, and the entire library had been cleaned out. Not by the studio, who legally owned the material, but by an unknown someone, or someones who light-fingered it for themselves. When I inquired to the higher-ups about this, nobody knew nothing. Kleptocracy, ah, seeing this movie Tetris, I could relate. As you may be able to tell by now, this is a Cold War espionage thriller masquerading as a comedy. Taron Edgerton is wonderful as the harried American, almost hopelessly in over his head, risking his livelihood, his family's security, even his own life as he chases this game around the globe. Why? Money, of course. During all this, what do the Russians claim they don't care about? Money, of course. Except what the Russians actually do care about as they watch their country plunge into free fall? You guessed it. Money, of course. If you've seen Terran Edgerton before in the movie Kinsman or the movie Rocket Man, you know he's not afraid to take a flying leap into wild unexplored territory. Well, he's well on form here, and my admiration of him only grew. Russia is not exactly our friend now, as we know, but this movie does show a human side of the equation. Bad guys everywhere, but also good guys everywhere too. Even a few Russians. <laughs> Okay, so the next movie has the brevity-challenged title of Bono and the Edge, a sort of homecoming with David Letterman. It's a documentary concert film. It was directed by Morgan Neville. It stars, guess who? Bono, the Edge, and David Letterman. It also prominently features Glenn Hansard. So this is only the second documentary I've reviewed, and though there's a concert at the center, that's only a small percentage of what we witness. Basically, we're following David Letterman, heavily bearded, as is his fuzzy desire these days, as he travels with Bono and The Edge, who show him their Dublin, and talk about the genesis of their band. Bono and The Edge, for those who don't know, are two of the four fine Irishmen who make up the group U2. A confession, I've never been a huge fan of U2. They always seem a bit too self-important in their stances, as though a rock and roll band could make a difference. But as the movie progresses and Letterman's questions draw Bono and the Edge out, it starts to make sense. Turns out this, quote, wanting to make a difference, end quote, attitude, all stems from the Troubles in Northern Ireland 30 plus years ago. The bloody acts of terrorism perpetuated on the Catholics by the Protestants and on the Protestants by the Catholics. From their stance as trying to unite all people, U2 has always been about raising awareness of injustices around the globe hmm, maybe a rock and roll band can make a difference. In any case, the whole thing clips right along. Glenn Hansard from the movie Once and The Commitments is a charming fellow. He came out and led an audience sing-along a few years back in Los Angeles when I saw a production of the Tony-winning show he wrote. He was charming indeed. So, in a nutshell, the whole thing grew on me. The live concert threaded throughout is enjoyable, and by the end, I felt entertained and a bit enlightened. And there's a phrase Bono used to describe the band's philosophy regarding inclusion quote, There is no them, there's only us. End quote. The next film is titled Persuasion. It was written by Ronald Bass and Alice Victoria Winslow, based on the novel by Jane Austen. And it was directed by Kerry Cracknell. It stars Dakota Johnson, Cosmo Jarvis, Nikki Amuka-Bird, Henry Golding and Izuka Hoyle. This film is the newest entry into the seemingly endless Jane Austen canon, and though you'd think that's an over-visited genre by now, these folks are here to show you there's life in the old girl yet. Though other reviewers have been less than kind towards this modernization for lack of a better term, I found the whole thing airy, fun and light as a feather. What the other critics seem to have the biggest beef over is that the main character, Anne, as played by Dakota Johnson, occasionally turns to the camera and addresses us, the audience, breaking the fourth wall, as it's called. A number of movies and shows do this, and the technique, I suppose, is considered modern. Too modern for those other critics, apparently. Jane Austen is fairly sacred turf to those of the British persuasion, pardon the pun, But for filmmakers, the difficulty in adapting any novel to movie form is the lack of narrative from the author. Books let you know how a character is feeling through the narration and descriptive passages. Movies need to show you how the character feels through action and or dialogue. One way is to insert an actual narrative and either have a voiceover from an unseen source describing inner thoughts, as the author would, or to have the character say out loud how they're feeling, either to another character, to themselves, or directly to us, in this case. British purists seem overly incensed with the liberty being taken here, but it all worked for me, and Dakota Johnson worked for me. I've been an entry-level fan of hers before this film, but I'm headed toward card-carrying fanboy status now. I thought she gave a liltingly amused performance, aided by a director of deftness and taste, There's no modern-day slang here, no winking attitude to distance the actors from the period or the story, nothing to yank us out of this elegant and sunny 19th-century world, and its rainbow cast. Think Bridgerton or the recent David Copperfield adaptation, which to me makes the whole pageant even more fun. Modern, perhaps, but fun. As for the story, well, it's classic Jane Austen. It centers on Anne finding love, having been in love before, and meeting up again with her previous flame. You don't really need to know anything more than that. Suffice it to say, all the performers are apt and able, as I've said, and Dakota Johnson comports herself wonderfully. I think Jane Austen herself might just get a wry smile over what these folks have done with her romantic and timeless story. This is Harry Kaysen. You're listening to Movie Night on WOMR 92.1, and WFMR 91.3 on your FM dial, and on the World Wide Web at www.womr.org. It's now time for my guest. He is my friend Kerry McCluggage, and though he is now retired, he was an executive at the highest level, both for Universal Television, where he was president for a decade, and Paramount Television, where he was the chairman for the next decade. When anything in television at those two studios got the green light, he was the person making that happen. He developed or helped develop such shows as Law & Order, Murder, She Wrote, The A-Team, Miami Vice, Entertainment Tonight, Star Trek Voyager, and Frasier, to name just a few. He also had his hand in several movies, including Out of Africa. And he's incredibly well-regarded in the world of entertainment. He's been referred to as a dolphin who swam with the sharks. Smarter than the sharks and not nearly as ruthless. The other remark came from a frustrated work colleague who couldn't understand why Kerry couldn't occasionally bend the rules and even lie, calling him, quote-unquote, morally inflexible. (laughs) A mutual friend turned to me and said, thank God for that. Here he is, the morally inflexible Kerry McCluggage, the man whom my boss
1: called Boss.
0: Hi, Kerry. How are you?
1: I'm fine. How are you, Harry?
2: <laughs> <laughs> fine. Thank you. Uh, so let's get right to it. Let's start at the top. Let's talk about Frasier a little bit. What's the uh, What's the genesis of how that show came
1: about? Uh, well, Frasier was um, one of the first shows that we developed uh, when I came over to Paramount from Universal. I'd uh, met with the network division president. He came back to me one afternoon and said that he had just sold a, a new series with... Uh, Kelsey Grammer to NBC with uh, the uh, writers that had come off of uh, Cheers and Wings, um, Casey Lee and Angel at the time, who were one of the top comedy writers at Paramount. Sure. Top comedy writing teams, I should say. He explained to me what the concept was, uh, which was that Kelsey would be playing a um, uh, an eccentric billionaire that was confined to a hospital bed. Oh uh, no! And. Uh, that he was kind of running his empire from the hospital bed, and that NBC loved it. And I said, "Well, you know, that's going to be a tough call for you, John." He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, you're going to have to call NBC back and tell them we're not doing that
2: show." <laughs> well, thank God.
1: <laughs> and uh, and explained to him why I didn't think it would work, and and that we should concentrate on um, doing, you know, basically the second act of of the character. From uh, Cheers, and and that was Fraser. Um, so uh, we met with uh, Casey Lee and Angel again, and and worked through that concept and uh, pitched it back to NBC, and they they bought the thirteen episode commitment. So
2: well, there we go. Let's talk a little bit about another one of your weird uh, shows, if I can call it your show. Let's talk about Law and Order, another long running money maker that's uh, still popular today
1: yeah, that was at uh, that was a uh, I think the last show that I developed at Universal before I left. Um, I particularly remember that one because uh, I enjoyed the the shows that were more difficult to sell. Um, we originally sold it to Fox Network. Barry Diller was running the Fox Network at that time. He had a couple of kids named Kevin Wendell and Garth and Sear that were uh, there at at Fox at the time we no, were naming names. good. he uh Called me in and said, you know, I understand that um, my lieutenants just bought this uh, series from you, and he uh, proceeded to explain to me why it would never work.
2: Oh yeah, long uh, over that'll cool. never
1: work. Primarily because he said, well, he says if I understand the concept, we're only going to meet these characters in the work environment, mm-hmm. and I said, yeah, that's it's a locked perspective for the show. That's what we wanted to do. He said, well, you know, let me explain. You know, audiences bond with the characters and they have to get to know them as friends and Invite them into their home and be a part of their personal lives. And if you you can't um, do a show where you're not going to see that side of it, I got a little not snotty with, them, but uh,
0: <laughs> you're
1: debating a little bit. And I said, well, you know, you work closely with the the people that uh, work for you that that bought this show. Do you feel like you know those people? Um, and and said, yes. And I said, well, you don't go home with them, do you? Uh, <laughs> and he took offense at that and oh. explained to me that uh, he would hate to call his friend sid scheinberg and tell him that i was being obstreperous about a commitment and i, mm-hmm. I um, said well let me give you his number and i said that's right you're a <laughs> <laughs> but that's the show we sold and that's the show we want to do and uh, i finally calmed him down a little bit by saying look i i can't let you out of the commitment but um If i can sell it elsewhere i'll sell it elsewhere and so we sold it to cbs uh released fox from their commitment and it was the favorite pilot that cbs ordered uh that they um ordered to pilot but did not order to series so it was Mm -hmm. a show that they did not order and uh then i took it to nbc where Brandon Tartikoff was running the network. And he he wanted this other show that we were doing called Nasty Boys that was another police show. So the deal we made was that we would write the 12 scripts behind the pilot of Law and & Order and do the two-hour pilot for Nasty Boys. And between the two, we would have to order one to series. He ended up ordering both. Um, Nasty Boys was six and out. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Law and & Order has been on for 20-plus years with multiple spinoffs. But yeah, okay.
2: So, as you were coming up through the ranks, uh, what's the best advice any of your higher ups ever gave you that comes to mind?
1: You know, the best advice I got early on was to read as many scripts as possible.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Sure, both episodic and pilot scripts, and and really um, steep myself in 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 uh, the quality of the of the scripts, you know, being produced and what were the elements that you needed to to do in, in kind of the typical three-act structure, which was a different structure, you know, given the commercial breaks in television at the time.
2: What's the best uh, script you ever read?
1: I have favorites, but most of the favorites are uh, um, are related to the, the degree of difficulty in selling them. Mm, I say The
2: more of a challenge, the more fun for you.
1: Yeah. And the Miami Vice script was would be right up there. Uh, sure. The, our premiere of that.
2: Yeah, I remember that. That was a great show,
1: and um, I think you know Fraser would on the comedy side would probably be the top top one that I'd I'd slate. It was just extremely well written. Uh, you know, I, I I would throw Law and Order into that category as well. The, the pilot script for that was uh, it was a really good demonstration of what the series would be, even though it was a a self contained story.
2: Typically, how involved were you with pilot scripts? Were you giving notes and overseeing them as they progressed?
1: yes i was very involved with that i I just don't know how you can do the development job without getting involved on that level because you have to help them uh pitch the series and then you know uh they're all searching for you know answers and uh, as long as they know that you're trying to advance their idea um then it made the the notes process pretty easy when when you were trying to reshape their idea into something else um
2: not so much
1: more difficult. And that really wasn't a job. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, in the, in the, I worked in movies at Universal and, um, Frank Price uh, was running the movie division at Universal at the time. And he wanted me to get, um, kind of just spend two or three months, uh, working with, the uh, new agents and, and, uh, talent that was associated with the movie product. I'd worked with John Hughes on, um, uh, the television version of Animal House, Delta House. Oh,
2: sure, Delta House, yeah, the late, Ray John Hughes.
1: But uh, he had a a movie at the time that um, Frank wanted me to go down and, and take a look at. He said, you know, this is a piece of shit, and he doesn't know what he's doing. I said, well, you know, that hasn't been my experience with John Hughes, but he did overshoot and did a lot of improv, and so the, the script, uh, he was one of the fastest writers that ever I was associated with, that he actually wrote... Uh, the script for um, the Breakfast Club on a plane from New York to LA. Oh my God! Um, and, uh, and rewrote it some since then. But John was a great director. He just wasn't wasn't terrific at the editing process and in condensing all the stuff that he had shot. Um, but we worked on that, and um, of course, it ended up being a big big hit, with much to the surprise of the people at Universal Pictures. But this was the Breakfast Club you're talking about. Yeah.
2: Wow. Um, and they didn't see it they didn't they did they couldn't put it together that it was going to be
1: great no no they they thought it was a mistake to have even ordered it
2: <laughs> oh god okay i want to talk about your dad just a bit he was uh he was important in uh, getting uh, a bunch of eagle scouts together in in uh, the old days in bellflower where we grew up together and uh, yeah, i think dead. as i remember uh, there was a guinness book of world records record that was set by your boy scout troop is that correct
1: I might have been at the time. I think we had eleven guys that all became Eagle Scouts uh, at the same time, and I think that was record-setting. I don't know if it was the Guinness Book of World Records, but it might uh, have.
2: I remember hearing about that—that that it was the Guinness Book—and certainly it was your dad that was responsible for that. He was quite a brilliant guy. And what are you doing with your time these days?
1: Well, I'm going back to trying to start campfires.
2: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> uh, last time I was with you, I asked you uh, if you could travel anywhere in the world since COVID was lifting, and I'm thinking about travel. Where would you go? You said you wanted to be in your swimming pool with your grandkids. Is that still <laughs>
1: true? yep. I, we're they uh, they're both getting pool trained as we speak, so
2: <laughs> well, let's talk it's, just a last little bit about television. What do you mm-hmm. like on television these days, being the uh, being the gourmet
1: that you are? There's a whole lot more with all the streaming services a of, of product out there. And you know, some of it is spotty. Um, some of it is very good. Um, I mean, I I think uh, as often as the case, some of the, the shows that have become bigger hits with the streamers uh, weren't necessarily anticipated by them when they bought them, but um, Stranger Things, for instance, on Netflix was, I think, is a, a really good uh, science fiction slash teenage show. Yeah um and they'd had zero expectations for that at netflix according to all the people that i know and and you know there's there's examples on almost all of the the shows the the streaming services of product that you know um probably would never uh, been able to be sold to a traditional broadcast network
2: yeah i think that's one of the thrills about where the time we're living is that all the opportunities for all these voices
1: yeah and um and that's ultimately I think uh they'll get wiser and sharper as they as they get more experience in in terms of evaluating shows that are brought to them um but they're up to a good start and I think you know more product is better not all of it's great but more more opportunities that you have for writers and producers uh to express what ideas are close to them and what they want to try to uh, get through to an audience, the uh, the better product is going to come out.
2: Kerry, thank you so much for your time and your your energy, and thank you for Fraser. Thank you for all the shows you brought forth.
1: I was lucky enough to work with some very talented people. So, um, to the extent that you can help them get their ideas uh, expressed and sold and and reach an audience, uh, that was always the rewarding part of my career but it it certainly um i I wouldn't say these are all you know my shows as much as they are the shows of people that I had the great pleasure of working with so
2: thank you kerry talk to you later
1: all right here i'll talk to you soon bye
0: and now we come to a movie i've been pondering for a while now but as it turns out, it's my favorite of this episode. It's White Noise. I've been pondering it because it's taken me this long and multiple viewings to get a handle on it. This may not sound like a positive review, but stay with me. It was written and directed by Noah Baumbach from the novel by Don DeLillo. It stars Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig, Don Cheadle, Raffi Cassidy, and Jodie Turner-Smith. This movie is by turns funny confusing, constantly surprising, expertly made and expertly acted, yet it is the oddest duck of a mainstream movie I have seen in a long time. It reportedly had a significant budget and I applaud these gamblers for believing they'd make their money back. These kinds of things used to be called prestige pictures, a studio hoping for artistic recognition to put some polish on their brand. Here's the story, a husband and wife played by Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig, had a blended family with multiple children. The husband is a college professor struggling with his medium-level success, and the wife has secrets that threaten to blow the family apart. Throw into this a man-made disaster of epic proportions, seemingly never-ending dialogue, and puzzling characters that come out of left field. And just when you think you've got a handle on this movie, it switches gears completely and becomes an entirely different breed of cat. There are tributes to other filmmakers here, if you're interested in looking for them, from Fellini to Altman to Spielberg and mostly Paul Thomas Anderson, iconic filmmakers all. I have to say, I was greatly amused by this crazy-ass movie, and even more so by Adam Driver, who isn't afraid to be in a wildly commercial project one moment, meaning it makes money, then follow it with two wildly artistic projects, meaning they don't. And Greta Gerwig, she's not only a fine actor, but a fine writer-director, too. She's truly the darling of the indies right now, soon to be releasing her big-budget version of Barbie, oh my God, like I said, wildly artistic, followed by wildly commercial. A word of warning, though, you may not like this movie at first. I didn't at first, though I loved it the second time. It is demanding, though very good-natured. It is also very smart, sometimes too much for its own good. But that's actually the point. It knows it's odd, and it's having fun being odd. It's playing up the pompous self-importance of overthinking aspects of the academic world while showing a family try to come to terms in recognizing each other while they and their entire town are thrown into an unavoidable cataclysm that might just shake the the ostrich-in-the-sand attitude right off these myopic people. Wow, really, Harry? Suffice it to say, this is the kind of film where... Back in pre-COVID days, you'd see it with friends, go out to dinner or drinks afterwards, and you can't stop talking about it because you still haven't figured it the hell out. Like hearing a language you're just on the edge of. I'm fond of puzzles like this. I hope you are too. Well, friends, that's my poem for this lusty month of May, 2023. Please join me every first Monday of the month at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here on 92.1 WOMR and 91.3 WFMR or online at www.womr.org. My thanks to Carrie McCluggage for joining me today and as always my heartfelt thanks to the talented Mr. Dunn and to my darling wife Lynn who views these movies with me and sometimes turns to me and says, Harry, What in the world are we even watching? (laughs) And of course, I thank you, my dear listeners. My name is Harry Kaysen. I am the movie knight. Goodbye and good movies.